Hi, I'm Whitney, and this is Get Lit, uh, my attempt to make ancient literature feel a little more relatable and perhaps entertain one or two people in the process. We're going to be starting out with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is from ancient Mesopotamia, written around 2100 BCE. So you'll also get to enjoy my attempts at uh, Mesopotamian pronunciation which, as you can imagine by my southern accent, is going to be very far off the mark. However, the great thing about ancient languages is, like, there's really nobody around to tell you for sure that that's not how it was pronounced. Anyway, this epic poem is one of the earliest known pieces of literature about a king named Gilgamesh, duh, and his best friend Enkidu. So, it is rife with amoral deities, demons, ogres, prostitutes, bloody battles, sex-crazed goddesses, drug-induced dreams, and a really big flood. A lot of ancient literature includes a really big flood at some point. A major theme of the poem is Gilgamesh's failed quest for immortality, which in the end he realizes, I'm sorry, spoiler, can only be gained by producing enduring works. Failed is really the key word here. Gilgamesh is incapable of making good decisions. His narcissism and lack of self-control cause a lot of suffering. Forget thinking through second and third order effects. Gilgamesh doesn't even work through the most immediate consequence before he acts. He's also incredibly lazy, which I can relate to, but it's not your typical epic hero trait. Honestly, sometimes I wonder if Gilgamesh is actually a satire mock the ruling dynasty and their obsession with long-dead kings. If so, it, it's a good one. Whether clever satire or honest effort or just a collection of stories, the epic of Gilgamesh has long outlasted both its subject and its creators. It stands as an enduring reminder of the human need for stories, a need that has remained unchanged since the ancient Mesopotamians walked the earth. Plus, it has sex, murder, ghosts, and a giant terror beast. So, let's put the epic in context. The stories that form the Epic of Gilgamesh were written in Meso Mesopotamia, oh, already messing up, during the Early Bronze Age, specifically during the Sumerian Third Dynasty of Ur, around 2200 to 2100 BCE. So, first things first, y'all, ancient Mesopotamia was fucking awesome. It was energetic, innovative, communal. It was an egalitarian society that accepted basically everyone as they were and provided for everyone. Both men and e women were educated, liter literate, more so than me, apparently, and employed. And most ancient Mesopotamian cities were jointly ruled by a man and a woman. Sexuality was a celebrated part of life. The cult of Ishtar was known not only for its sacred prostitutes, but also for its transgender and homosexual followers. So basically, ancient Mesopotamia, 21st century BCE, far more progressive than anything we have in the 21st century CE. However, we do have penicillin and air conditioning, so big picture, it may even out. But anyway... Back to the Fertile Crescent, which is where Mesopotamia was, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, 
where Iraq and parts of Kuwait and Syria now exist. The history of Mesopotamia stretches from 10,000 BCE until the 7th century CE. It includes innovations like the invention of the wheel, the development of agriculture, the introduction of medical concepts like diagnosis and prognosis, and my personal favorite, the birth of bureaucracy. By 3000 BCE, human settlements had transformed into complex societies, and the predominant form was the city-state. So in the city-state, a single city dominated its surrounding settlements. Each city was devoted to a patron deity, and its layout was centered around a temple to that deity. The city was ruled by a king and or a priest. Some rulers served as both. The role of high priest could be filled by a woman. As I said earlier, both cities were jointly ruled by a man and a woman. The most well-known female ruler is Inhaduana, a high priestess of the later, later Akkadian Empire, circa 2200 BCE. She is also the first poet whose name is known to history. Writing emerged in the 4th century BCE. Historical records followed next century. And these people loved to read and write. Ancient Mesopotamia was lousy with libraries. They were also extremely religious. Their gods were, like most gods, human-like and flawed, often petulant, and sometimes hilarious. Now we're really going to get into some name butchering as I give you a little bit of overview of some of the main deities. So we have three supreme deities, Enki, who was a creator god and also the god of water, wisdom, and magic. Enlil, the father of the gods and decreer of fates. Basically, he assigned occupations to humans. Anu, a creator god and ancestor of all the Mesopotamian deities. So those are the three supreme ones, but there were other powerful gods in the pantheon. Utu, who was later called Shamash, the sun god, protector of humanity. Even in the netherworld, he would try to protect humans. So very, very dedicated. We have Inanna, who you may know as Ishtar, as she was later called, who is the goddess of love, sex, and war. Ninlil is married to Enlil, and basically that's pretty much her entire identity. So feminism fail on that one. Nana, also called Sin, the moon god and the lord of wisdom. And then we have two mother goddesses. The earliest one is Namu, also called Nama. And she gave birth to the heavens and earth and created humans. The younger mother goddess is Ninma, who is the, also the goddess of pregnancy and childbirth. Whew. Okay. <laughs> so, if you really want a good taste of Mesopotamian religion and the way of thinking, um, you can't do much better than looking at the myth of how humans came to exist. It started when the gods got tired of doing all the manual labor and other work required to keep the planet up. I mean, it, the work never stops, right? So they decided to create a being that was smarter than the animals, but still subservient to the immortals. This is basically the same thing humans are now trying to do with robots. It's also, unfortunately, how humans have treated other humans over the millennia through slavery. 
which leads me to believe that civilization is mainly built on attempts to avoid doing any work. The gods needed their automatons to be well made, so they went to Namu, the mother of the cosmos, who was obviously an expert at creating cool shit. Namu's son, Inki, told her how to form beings from clay, and with the help of Ninma, she successfully created some fine-looking humans. She and Ninma promptly assigned hard work to them, which is a little bit like expecting a baby to pull its own weight around the house, but hey, no one said gods were good parents. The creation of humankind was excellent news for the gods and goddesses, so they threw a huge party to celebrate. Inki and Ninma got trashed, and Ninma decided, hey, wouldn't it be fun to make a few more humans? So Inki said she could make her humans, and he promised he would decree a fate, or give a job, to each human she made. So she formed six humans out of clay, but she was creating under the influence. So each new human had a different flaw. One was blind, another had no genitalia, another was infertile, and so on. Inky thought for a moment and came up with a fate for each one. The blind person became a singer. The living Ken doll became a court official. People were accepted into society as they were and contributed what they could. I mean, you've got to love a culture that explains birth defects and disabilities by saying, everyone's made from the same stuff, the gods were just shit-faced when making some of us. It's actually a really touching way to acknowledge and explain the existence of disabilities and disfigurements while celebrating all humans as valuable, important, and divinely made. So, the gods eventually struggled with the usual, usual ancient god problems, such as what to do about human overpopulation. Usually the answer was drown everyone. This is not surprising. The Fertile Crescent is, after all, between two massive rivers, Water was both the source of life and a force of destruction. The ancient Mesopotamians' mythology revolved a lot around water. They believed that the world was a disk floating within a massive ocean, with the sky forming a vault between the earth and the water above. Rain was ocean water that managed to leak through the sky, which is sort of a neat concept. It's kind of like being in um, one of those sensory deprivation kind of floating pods, I guess. Eh. The earliest known flood myth is from Eridu Genesis, an 18th century BCE Sumerian text. No doubt the most famous myth is the Judeo-Christian story about Noah and his floating zoo, which was written about 1300 years after Eridu Genesis, but that's only one story among multitudes. The Epic of Gilgamesh contains one of the early Mesopotamian flood myths, basically plagiarized from another text. Copyright was not such a big deal in ancient Mesopotamia. Sumerian was the earliest written Mesopotamian language. We don't have a lot of Sumerian texts available, but they were dominant in ancient literature, as well as government writing, scientific documents, and codes of law. Sumerian texts were even mass-produced during the Ur-Three dynasty, which is when poems about Gilgamesh were first written. So that gives you an idea of the cultural literacy of that area in the time when the Epic of Gilgamesh was actually compiled and produced. So who was Gilgamesh? Well, we don't really know a whole lot about him. It's kind of like King Arthur. Like, you know all the stories, but what are the facts? Gilgamesh was king of the Sumerian city-state Uruk during the early dynastic period, most likely 
sometime between 2800 and 2500 BCE. He was posthumously deified and worshipped as a god in parts of Sumer. Prayer tablets depict him as a judge of the dead in the underworld, which kind of a sweet gig, I guess, if you got to be in the underworld. Not much is known about his actual life, like I said, but over the years, the mythology surrounding him grew. It absorbed the accomplishments of other kings, other heroes, and it also was embellished with the supernatural and the sacred. The Earthry dynasties shared stories and poems about Gilgamesh to prove the ruler's ties to the early kings of Uruk. They repeatedly encouraged comparisons of themselves to Gilgamesh, like this was their street cred. When one reads Gilgamesh, one can't help but wonder why anyone would want to be this much of a train wreck, but, you know. There are many stories about Gilgamesh, but the most famous is the Epic of Gilgamesh, compiled by Mesopotamian scholar and scribe Sin Leki Unini. I really apologize, I know I butchered that circa 1200 BCE. This version, known as the Standard Version, was discovered in 1853 CE and translated in 1872 CE, which makes it one of the oldest, if not the oldest, surviving works of literature. So, let's meet our hero. Gilgamesh is the powerful god-king of Uruk, but his people, I don't know, the Urukites, aren't exactly thrilled with him. The menfolk especially don't love their highness's charming habit of deflowering their brides-to-be. Gilgamesh presents them with the admittedly difficult-to-rebut-I'm-a-god-king argument, so the people of Uruk appeal to a higher power, the goddess of creation. She picks up her trusty clay, spits on it, so ladylike, and creates Enkidu, a wild man. The plan is for Enkidu to kick Gilgamesh's ass and make him quit raping the women folk. Enkidu's off to an inauspicious start, though, as he terrifies an innocent trapper almost immediately after being spat into existence. The trapper hauls ass home to ask his father for advice on dealing with hairy man-beast. Daddy Trapper tells his son to pay a visit to good King Gilgamesh and ask if he can borrow a whore. I mean, a cup of sugar. No, wait, I totally mean a whore. And not like in a slut-shamey way, but like that is her profession. She is a sacred prostitute of the cult of Ishtar. So the theory behind this kind of unorthodox solution is that upon exposure to a horny naked woman, Enkidu will become civilized and no longer behave like a wild animal. Apparently, the author of this epic never met a heterosexual human male or a Greek god. So, the trapper goes to Gilgamesh, who appears to have quite the liberal open-door policy when it comes to his subjects, and the king indeed loads out Shamhat. The trapper leads Shamhat into the woods, points out Enkidu, and utters the spoken word equivalent of an Algreen song to set the mood for sweet, sweet lovemaking. That is he, Shamhat. Release your clenched arms. Expose your sex so he can take it in your voluptuousness. Do not be restrained. Take his energy. When he sees you, he will draw near to you. 
Spread out your robes so he can lie upon you, and perform for this primitive the task of womankind. His animals who grew up in his wilderness will become alien to him, and his lust will groan over you. And so Shamhat shares her fertile crescent with wild man Enkidu. The two have sex for six days and seven nights, which, in my opinion, makes Enkidu way more of a god than Gilgamesh, but I'm not the one writing the tablets here. So now that Enkidu has been fucked brainless, I mean civilized, his wild animal companions indeed shun him. Shamhat persuades him to leave the forest behind for life in the bustling city of Uruk. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Gilgamesh has been having some really weird dreams. First, he dreams that a big fucking meteorite, or BFM for short, falls to earth and he can't move or lift it, which is not surprising. It's a huge, heavy rock. His subjects start celebrating the BFM as their ruler, and can you blame them? I mean, a huge rock is probably more appealing as a leader than Gilgamesh. So, Gilgamesh is inexplicably drawn to the BFM, and he, quote, loves it and embraces it as a wife. This conjures up disturbing mental images of a Mesopotamian god-king dry-humping a large rock. You are welcome. In his second dream, Gilgamesh finds an axe outside his marital chamber, and again the Yurikis have gathered around to coronate an inanimate object. Instead of wondering how the hell his entire kingdom managed to fit into his hallway, Gilgamesh goes to the axe and loves it and embraces it as a wife. Axes will prove to be very important in Gilgamesh's life. This man hates trees like Captain America hates Hitler. I'm totally not surprised that he makes love to axes in his dreams. Gilgamesh turns to his mother, Ramat Ninsan, a minor goddess of wisdom, for help with interpretation. Now, most people wouldn't run and tell their moms about their wet dreams involving axes and rocks, but Gil is not most people. Ramat Ninsan tells her son that both the meteorite and the axe represent a man who will eventually become friends with Gilgamesh and repeatedly save him. Imagine the disappointment of Mama Gilgamesh here when she realizes that not only is her son a rapist who dreams about humping random objects, but he also needs someone else constantly around to rescue his worthless ass. After Gilgamesh left, she probably tried to kill herself in shame before remembering that, you know, she was immortal. Gil's mom also tells him that when he meets the man symbolized by the BFM and the axe, Gilgamesh will embrace him like a wife. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Unfortunately, we don't get any hot Gil on Inkadu humping action in the poem, so I'm assuming that part happens off screen. So, as you may recall, Shamhat has taken Enkidu into Uruk because Enkidu's newfound civilization has caused his wild friends to shun him. Kind of like when your college party friends get married, have kids, move to the suburbs, except instead of doing anything remotely like that, Enkidu has been banging a prostitute for a week straight. Apparently, that is not wild enough for his buddies, leaving the reader to wonder just what kind of crazy shit goes down in the forest. 
Shamhat dresses Enkidu in her clothes and then finds him a job with some shepherds who are amazed at how much Enkidu apparently looks like Gilgamesh. If, you know, our king dressed like a prostitute, one shepherd adds. They give Enkidu food and also beer, of which Enkidu drinks seven jugs. This dude knows how to party. He then rubs himself with oil and turns into a human. This may all seem like a strange way to become civilized, but for the Mesopotamians, the city was the pinnacle of human existence. Wearing clothes, having a trade, drinking, dining with other people, cleaning and perfuming yourself, and enjoying sex were all part of urban communal life. Enkidu has to experience these things on his journey from wild man-beast to civilized sidekick. Apparently, Enkidu is a kick-ass shepherd and probably has a great future, but this is not to be his destiny. One day, he and Shamhat meet a young man on his way to a wedding. The young man tells them all about Gilgamesh's kingly tradition of having intercourse with the destined wife before the husband does. Enkidu, having a far better moral compass than Gilgamesh, is outraged by this practice. And so a pissed-off Enkidu makes his way to Gilgamesh's home, with Shamhat at his side. The soon-to-be-deflowered bride is already in Gil's bedroom, but Enkidu stands in the doorway and cock-blocks the holy hell out of the god-king. Gilgamesh and Enkidu fight until apparently Gil gains the upper hand, probably by fighting dirty, and Enkidu concedes defeat and praises the king's awesomeness. Then the two men kiss. I guess Enkidu is okay with Gilgamesh raping brides on their wedding days then. Mm. Was that not like explicitly why he was created? So obviously just, you know, this is what happens when gods get involved. Like things just do not go as planned. Gilgamesh summons his mother to introduce her to his new bestie. Enkidu, who has no mother or father, starts crying. Because apparently a few weeks is long enough for a man made out of spit and mud to develop a concept of parents and to feel deep sorrow and loss at not having them. That must have been part of Shamhat's sex magic. Enkidu and Gilgamesh celebrate their bromance by hanging out in the city, but eventually Gil realizes that all of this dicking around is just making them grow weak and lazy. He proposes that they go on an adventure to the cedar forest to cut down a tree and fight Humbaba, the forest guardian, who is created by the gods to paralyze any human who enters the forest. Worst road trip ever. Enkidu, who is obviously the smarter of the two, tries to talk Gilgamesh out of this plan. Gilgamesh will not be swayed, however, because he wants to establish fame for eternity. And you can't just settle for making a sex tape or running for president like a normal fame-hungry douchebag. Enkidu finally acquiesces and the two go to the forge to make weapons while holding each other by the hand. And now you can run the male bonding in ancient Mesopotamia category on Jeopardy. The guys make an axe, hatchet, armor, and some swords. And then they lay their plan out to the elders of Yurik. The counselors try to dissuade them, but just like frat boys with a truckload of kegs and a slip-and-slide, Enkidu and Gilgamesh are not to be deterred from their fun. Stay tuned for the next installment, which starts with an action-packed account of the guys packing for their trip. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed, and I 
hope you join me for the rest of the Epic of Gilgamesh.